Hey Golanzo fans, you enjoy hearing about sporting and cultural feats from back in the day? So, now that you've heard hopefully all six episodes from this run of Golazzo, here's a taster of another podcast we've been working on at Muddy Knees Media. It's called A Life Lived, and each week it looks back on an icon from the world of sport, film, music or politics. This episode is all about Muhammad Ali. But you'll also find shows featuring Stan Lee, David Bowie, Amy Winehouse, Anthony Bourdain, Joan Rivers, and many other fascinating names. Have a listen, and if you like what you hear, give us a search and subscribe to A Life Lived on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audioboom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. We had homeless people coming and living in our house, so that was a norm. We thought it was a sin to have empty bedrooms. So if you see somebody and they're sane and they just have nowhere to live, and they're dirty, but they, they can talk in clear sentence. We don't think they're going to stab us. You know, they came and slept in our house. And my mom would put them in hotel rooms because she didn't want them in the house. So she paid the hotel for a month in advance. Uh, and then my dad would take them shopping, buy them clothes, and try to see if they can find them a job. I don't know if they kept it or not. But he was always helping people. It's hard to think of someone living so selflessly. Acts of generosity like this were a bit more common in the 70s. And for Muhammad Ali's daughter, Hana Ali, it was completely normal. Random acts of kindness brought joy to the heavyweight champion, and he wanted his children to understand that selflessness. Daddy was a big ball of love. I called him the Black Santa. I said he was an angel on this earth. He was like just a big classroom lesson, just watching and living with him all his life. We learned so much watching him, not just by what he taught us verbally, but by his actions. You know, Leyland, I thought it was cool to take our allowance and find homeless people to buy food for when we were like seven years old because we saw our father doing it, you know, not because he told us we were supposed to, just watching him every day. All he was about was helping people, making them happy, making them feel good, giving himself constantly. His whole life, he just gave, gave, gave of himself. There's always people being welcomed in. Any stranger could walk up to the door and walk in. I mean, I'm not kidding you. The guards at the gates had instructions to let people in. If the phone rang, you know, if he didn't answer, just let them through if, he, if he, they knew he was home. You know, so he didn't like anyone to turn anyone away. It was amazing. Today, we'll be looking at the life of a Muslim draft dodger who paved the path for equality in a world rife with racism. He could float like a butterfly. He stung like a bee. He was as generous as Santa, and he was even a Grammy nominee. Stick with us and you'll see. I'm talking about the one, the only, Muhammad Ali! Welcome to A Life Lived. I'm Stephanie Okupniak. Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. was born in Louisville, Kentucky on January 17, 1942. He was one of six children in a blue-collar home. His father was a billboard and sign painter, and his mother was a domestic helper. Cassius never considered fighting until he was 12 years old. He was hanging out with his friends when his bike was stolen. He grabbed an officer and reported the crime. Cassius was so furious, he told the officer he wanted to whoop the thief. The officer was Joe Martin. He ran a local boxing club for youths, and he told Cassius, if you're going to whoop the thief, you better learn to box first. Cassius didn't take up the offer at first. One evening, while watching amateur boxing on television, he got inspired. He started to train with Fred Stoner and later would credit him for his style and stamina. His first fight was in 1954 against Ronnie O'Keefe. Cassius won the fight over a split decision. He would go on to win 100 amateur games and lose five. He won six Kentucky Gold Glove titles, two National Glove titles, an Amateur Athletic Union national title. 
1960, Cassius went to Rome to represent America in the Olympics. He won gold in light heavyweight boxing. But when he came home, his gold medal couldn't change the way he was treated. Segregation was still rampant across America. The Ku Klux Klan were very influential. Burning crosses and lynchings were still visible across the South. They were getting lynched in the 1960s. My father was saying, I'm the greatest. His house was bombed once. I mean, you know, so our leaders were killed left and right. You know, you couldn't live a, just a peaceful life. You know, so it's like getting, if you really watch old footage and what the cops and police would do right in public in the front of everyone, I mean, what, they weren't even hiding it. So here's my father in this time saying I'm the greatest and actually saying that some white people he believed were devilish publicly on television because of the way they treated people, other human beings around the world. And no harm came his way. He walked the streets freely. He jogged freely. Cassius released a spoken word album in 1963 called I Am The Greatest. It sold over half a million copies and won the champ a Grammy nomination. It's considered a very early example of rap music and a precursor to hip-hop. He would later record another album, a children's novelty record called The Adventures of Ali and His Gang versus Mr. Tooth Decay. This would earn him a second Grammy nomination for Best Recording for Children. My dad always rhymed, but he didn't walk around the house rhyming. He was just chill, laid back, you know, playful and loving. It was the same personality you saw, but just like toned down because he wasn't in performance. You know what I'm saying? He just sort of performed, but he liked to rhyme. He had little rhymes all the time. You know, he was always trying to rhyme here and there. Cassius became a professional boxer. He was making a name for himself with his skill and his strength, but he was not yet the persona that won over the world. Johnny Nelson, former World Cruiserweight champion and Sky Sports presenter and pundit, remembers that he was talented, but not everyone liked him. The one thing people don't realize, Ali's first half a dozen, dozen professional fights, he was classed as boring. People didn't like him. They didn't want to go and watch him. And then it got to the point where he, he understood. It's like watching a movie, watching a pantomime. You can play the villain or the hero. Everybody wants to see the villain lose. Everyone wants to see the villain get beaten up. And the things he was saying and doing at that time in this world, people want to see him lose. And that's why he put bombs on seats. That's why people, he had the attention because he was risen up there hoping they could watch this guy fall. Johnny remembers one of his seminal fights in that time. Against Cleveland Big Cat Williams. To me, he showed something. He showed, if you had a dictionary and you said boxing, the art of boxing, that'd be the video that was next to it. That'd be the picture that'd describe it all. He learned to, to move, to hit, and not be hit. It showed panache, showed style, showed class, showed precision. And that's the art of boxing. Cassius joined the black Muslim group Nation of Islam in 1964. He connected with the group's values of equality and peace. He became good friends with one of the group's leaders, Malcolm X, and changed his name to Muhammad Ali. He would later go on the Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca in 1971. This became one of the biggest inspirations for Ali to leave Nation of Islam and convert to Sunni Sufi Islam. He was very religious and spiritual, but very religious. So he wanted to get to heaven. Everything he did, he always said, I'm trying to get to heaven. So, <laughs> and he meant it. When Ali turned Muslim, the Black Panthers, J. Edgar Hoover, he said they were the biggest menace to modern America at the time. And then Ali turned Muslim, which was like double trouble. 
and he didn't mind the, the threats that were there on him. They didn't mind. He said, look, do what you got to do, but this is me. Eventually, the world turned to how he thought, what he thought about, and looked at his beliefs and respected what he wanted. To me, inspiring. Muhammad Ali knocked out Sonny Liston in 1964 to become the heavyweight champion of the world. In April 1967, Muhammad was drafted into the Vietnam War. When he was called to be sworn into the military, they asked for Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. Muhammad did not come forward. After being discovered in the crowd, he said his name was Muhammad Ali and refused to come forward on the grounds that he was a Muslim minister and his religious beliefs prevented him from fighting. My father's main reason for that is simply he did not believe in killing or hurting people. You have to live with what you do on this earth. I mean, no government has the right to tell you to take another man's life when God tells you not to. That's what people are doing in neighborhoods every day, fighting wars to stay alive. But they go to jail, gangs. It's no different. So it's like they're defending their turf, get him before he gets me. And then you have big, bad America coming and trying to lure you in. And he wasn't even being asked to fight, but they told him he would perform boxing expositions. But they knew that his going would lure other people to go, and he wasn't against it. And then there were other brown people being done wrong by white America. So there was a lot of reasons, but he never would have fought in a war. He would never take a life. No matter what, he would have died first. They want people to fight wars, so they say it's okay when you can kill, you know? So it's like, you know, he's going to take the consequences for standing up for his beliefs. He didn't dodge the war. He didn't go enroll in college. He just simply took a stand and said, I'm not going. He was arrested under felony charges and was stripped of his world titles and boxing license for five years. He was charged with violating selective service laws, but was given permission to remain free while he appealed. Muhammad continued to claim that he lost his prime fighting years. He paid the price and didn't sue the government later for retribution, which he should have, you know, for losing his prime fighting years. Never looked back and said, why me? Never made the excuse or wish he could have, would have on any footage of him when they asked him about that. Oh, well, what's done is done. You know what I mean? You go forward from that. You can't get those years back. You know, those prime fighting years. My father doesn't never lived in the past or harped on what could have been or even, you know, worried about regrets too much. You know, so he just, you can go forward and just move forward. After his conviction, Muhammad returned to the ring in the 1970s to win back his heavyweight titles. He dove headfirst against the greatest boxers of the time, stunning them with his skills in the ring and his sharp tongue. He was even so bold, he would predict the round he would knock out his opponent in. He got it right in a row like 20-something times. He only stopped predicting, and he said this somewhere publicly as well, because people started betting their houses and cars and coming up to him saying, I'm going to lose my house if you don't get him in the same round. So he saw this is not healthy. So people started making bets on him because he was always accurate about what round they would fall in. This one will end in round six, round seven. Round, and he was right. Somewhere between 21 and 26 times in a row, he was right and just stopped. He would continue to draw large crowds and win global attention with epic fights like the Thriller in Manila against Joe Frazier and the Rumble in the Jungle against George Foreman. Nobody expected him to win that fight at that age. George Foreman, he was a beast. Everybody was fearful of him. He was taking people out with one shot. And Ali went in there, even in his own dressing room. He had to talk to them hard and say, look, you've not come to a wake. Watch what happens here. And it was, that fight tells so many stories. That fight inspires so many people looking back on it. At the time, obviously, you know, most people thought, oh, he's too old to deal with this young, tough, strong puncher. 
And then look how he dissected him. You just use skill, speed, accuracy, hand foot eye coordination. And George Foreman had no answer for it because that's something what Ali had that you can't buy, borrow, pretend to have. It comes natural and, and, and he, he was probably sought from a young age to express himself. And he did, in and out of the ring. When he wasn't on stage going round after round against an opponent, he was at home raising his family. Muhammad was married four times and had nine children. His daughter, Hana Ali, remembers her father chasing them around the house with a tape recorder. He loved to record for many reasons. One of them is he thought that as far as his children were concerned, he thought it was such beautiful joy that he was experiencing watching us and how nice it would be if they could hear themselves. You know, video recording at home wasn't as big back then. So he just had the tape. He liked the fact that he can get authenticity. He wanted us to be authentic in ourselves. We didn't know half the time we were being recorded. So he would just want to capture the moments for us to hear later for himself to relive. Then as far as things that were going on in the world. He loved being a father. He loved people. It's so hard to find people that genuinely love people in the world. He was such a special soul. I used to tell my father, this is his last lifetime, and I believe he had a hundred lifetimes, if not more, because he learned the hardest lessons. He had them down, just the patience and forgiveness and generosity and caring for people. My father was very confident. He knew his how special he was, but he also reminded us that everyone was special, that you know people were taking stands all over the world. And you don't know about him half the time because nobody knows their name. So he saw his career as giving him a platform and he wanted to do everything he could with that. Help his people, help people in general, help the less fortunate, spread truths, his spiritual knowledge of whatever he believed to be, you know, the truth. Not just religious, just being a decent human being. And he instilled that in us at a very early age. He taught us everything young. He didn't wait till we were certain ages to teach us anything. If he wasn't dazzling you in the ring, he may surprise you with some sleight of hand. He liked to do magic tricks. So that was his hobby, was doing magic trick. But he didn't believe that you should deceive people. So he always showed the trick after. He never did a trick and just walked away. He always showed how it was done. Because Islam, that teaches that you don't deceive. And even in simple magic is deceitful, they say. So he took that stuff to heart. So he thought, okay, I know how I can still do what I love. I'll practice magic. I'll, I'll do the magic trick and then show them how it was done after. <laughs> so there's certain tricks he wasn't allowed to have. He was kicked out of the magician's union because he was giving away, they said, their bread and butter. Because he would always tell the tricks. And sometimes he'd be on camera, someone will be filming him, so the trick is now exposed, you know? <laughs> but yeah, he loved that. He loved to do magic tricks. When he wasn't at home with his family or training for a bout, he became known as a representative for America around the world. He spoke with world leaders about peace and attended dinner parties at the White House. He even trained the Chinese Olympic boxing team. But he would be the first to admit He'd rather hang out with the cooks in the kitchen than be sat at a fancy dinner table. He liked just to go where people wouldn't even expect him to be, places that nobody else goes, places where people are just down to earth. He liked that people like that would just come up to him and chill and talk to him like he was family, and he knew that he could do the most good there. So, I mean, when my father was invited to palaces and, and, and to see the presidents, I mean, he was always going to look for the cooks and the workers and the helpers. I mean, that's where he always disappeared to, sometimes in the middle of a dinner. So he didn't like being with snooty, uptight, or just, you know, the elite. He liked to be with down-to-earth, everyday people. That's all he ever asked for, all the time, on an everyday basis. Anywhere we go, he'd always ask us, where's the rundown neighborhoods or the places that people don't like to go to? So he started getting wiser with the imitations he would accept, because what he felt that was pressure was the fact that he couldn't go and help and inspire people because of the politics that were going on in different countries. So things like that is what troubled him because that stopped him because he was so big and well-known. He couldn't just go make a trip now that he wanted to make just to go and help inspire people and meet the people. And if there was something political going on in that place at the time, that was frustrating. 
other than that, nothing intimidated my dad, <laughs> nothing outside of religion and thinking he was doing right by God and his goal. Muhammad wanted to try everything. Nothing was out of reach. If he wasn't winning over people with his titles, he tried to woo them with his acting. He appeared in several movies, and he even tried to recruit a young John Travolta as his acting coach. Between scenes, he'd teach John to box, and John would teach Muhammad to dance. The two became close friends. So close, the actor flew Muhammad and his wife to Vegas for a weekend of fun. Sadly, the friendship ended abruptly. Hannah remembers them fondly. He was always at our house, John Travolta. They were really close for some years. He would hang out. He was really cool. And he joined that religion and disappeared. Like, totally disappeared. He got, he became a, what do you call it? Scientology? Muhammad never forgot his roots. He remembered his neighborhood and his upbringing fondly and encouraged others to return to their hometowns and give back to their community. He was an incredible advocate for children, homeless, and impoverished people around the world. He always believed that charity started at home. People loved and respected him. My father would literally go up and start talking to the homeless people that could still talk and talk to them, the people that were on drugs or that looked like they were on drugs or he, people were shooting craps in the street. He'd go and take a quarter and take a second, let me join the game and start dice, throwing dice with them. He just believed that you should always go back to these neighborhoods, go back and show people that you can make it too and that you haven't forgotten that you're struggling out here. He always thought he was lucky to have made it out because he wasn't smart in school and, you know, blacks didn't have a lot of opportunities. They were purposely held back on top of that. He just liked to go everywhere. And a lot of these communities are predominantly Hispanic and black and uh, minorities. So that's just where they were. But he wanted to go anywhere, like trailer parks, like anywhere you would not expect to see him. <laughs> so, <laughs> my father always felt like and said numerous times that, you know, if somebody wants to get me, no man can protect me. I can't live my life afraid to go out and meet the people and talk to people and help. You know, I'm here. I was born to do what I'm doing. I'm here to do God's work. And I have to live my life unafraid. So, you know, God's my bodyguard, is what he would say. That he just had extreme faith, you know. If you're supposed to survive this life, you're going to do it. He was a generous man, but certainly not without his flaws. He was known for being a philanderer, and he didn't hide it. Many of the women he had affairs with would become his wives, but Hannah remembers her father had a type. My dad liked women that were 300 pounds. So he loved big women. His granddad did. And, you know, there's tapes of Gene Kerouac calling my dad saying, we have a woman here for you. How much does she weigh? 250 pounds. I'll be there in 20 minutes. I swear to God. In 1981, after a disappointing loss against Trevor Burbick, Muhammad Ali retired from professional boxing. He had a career record of 56 wins, 37 by knockout, and five losses at the age of 39. He may have been out of the ring, but he was never out of the public eye. He never allowed his fame to prevent him from helping out his fellow man. In 1981, Ali was woken in the middle of the night by a phone call from the police. A man was standing on the ledge of a building in Los Angeles, and only wanted to speak to the champ. He arrived, and when he saw the man, he told him, I'm your brother, I want to help you. This encouraged the man inside, where Ali comforted him and brought him to safety. In 1984, Ali announced that he had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Daddy had Parkinson's in the 70s. My mom remembers my father just before Sphinx fights, around those fights, you know, when he fought Ken Norton the last time. 
he was slower. He wasn't feeling as good. But everyone thought it was age. You didn't start hearing his slurred speech, though, until 1979 before he fought Holmes. The slurred speech started in 79. And they think, oh, punch drunk, tired, not enough rest. Now, in hindsight, they know it was Parkinson's. But my father would never, ever have retired. If he didn't have Parkinson's, he would have come back trying to shock the world. It's who he was. It was why he did what he did. It's why he's three-time heavyweight champion. He would always have tried to defy impossible odds and shock the world. That was just my father. He had to have been stopped some kind of way. Whether it's old age, whether it's disease. He's like, I don't know. I don't think about it. I just get up and I live every day. Does the world know I have it? And he's like, yeah, they know you have it. It's like, what? He's just so funny. And then right back to, okay, what are we having for breakfast in the kitchen? You know. So he had good days and bad days. And I don't mean bad like in bad, but like more challenging, meaning... He might be more tired a certain day. And even still, he had this light in his eyes. He wasn't in any physical pain. It was just a condition that he lived with. And it was so hard to make people understand that because he was just so advanced in acceptance and still seeing the good. And he would just say, oh, well, now look at all the other people that have Parkinson's in the world. They're going to see me going out and still getting out and getting up and and I'm going to help them. Because people get diagnoses and they want to die. They want to kill themselves. They don't know how to be, you know, in a more challenging state of existence. But my father's whole life was a challenge. And he looked at everything from a spiritual aspect and standpoint. And that's how, why he was such a great human being. He obviously is the poster man for being brave. But it was so brave of him to be public and open about his condition and not to shy away. I mean, he never stopped being in front of the cameras. His opportunities for being in front of the cameras became less and less. But he knew that his impact in the world, whatever it be, political, community, charity, boxing, he knew that it still resonated and that it had anticipated. And he loved being out there. It meant so much to people because if Muhammad Ali, the best fighter in the world, the world heavyweight champion, shows weaknesses, shows shows vulnerabilities, shows a side to him that most men would not want others to see. If he can do it, I wonder how many other people are inspired to say, you know what, it's just how it is. You know, I've accepted my my fate. Uh, This is how my life will be. Again, there's a lesson learned. To his last days, there were lessons learned. Despite suffering the physical limitations of the disease, Ali remained in the public eye, raising funds for his many charities around the world. It is estimated his work provided over 200 million meals to people suffering from hunger around the world. In 2005, Ali received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Bush. He attended the inauguration of President Barack Obama in 2009, and soon after would receive the President's Award from the NAACP for his public service. On June 3, 2016, Muhammad Ali passed away from a respiratory issue. He was 74 years old. Muhammad wanted a memorial service where everyone could be included and treated equally. Louisville, Kentucky embraced the request and provided a home for the three-day event. World leaders, celebrities, childhood friends, and neighbors lined the streets to honor the champ in his hometown. 20,000 people attended the memorial service, and an estimated 1 billion people watched in their homes. His family sat with President Clinton, Billy Crystal, Will Smith, and former opponents, including George Foreman. All walks of life, uh, all religions turned up to show their respect. Past presidents and kings and princes turned up, sat on the same roof on the same bench next to each other, in an arena full of rich and poor. The whole of Louisville 
This was part of Ali's wish. He wanted everybody to celebrate his life. And it was just, it was a, such a party, friendly atmosphere. It's very hard to explain, but I have never seen anything or anybody that has managed to get so many people that, leaders of countries, sat together with the same goal, just to show respect. And it was just, to me, I thought this guy was truly great. Truly, truly great. A big celebration, just like any other parade if he was alive and coming to, he would have loved it. And, you know, so, I mean, I was so happy. You know, I had these mixed emotions when he died. I was happy, I was relieved, and I was sad. Sad because I never hugged and kissed him again. Happy that he went so peacefully with all his family around him. Happy that he was in his sleep, that he didn't know he was dying or any pain. But then relieved and so happy to see other people in the streets. And I realized that that was the dream he used to talk about. And oh my God, he prophesized his passing, you know, seeing his own funeral early in life. He used to dream that, just that exact scene. He talked about that scene he dreamed, how he just took off flying. All the people chanting his name and screaming and filling the streets. You know, so I was like, oh my God, I realized that. Literally, I realized that when I was going down Broadway you know, following the hearse to his final resting place. And I thought all the people were just lined and lined on bridges and helicopters. And there was no gap of street where there weren't mine from the cemetery to, I mean, miles and miles. He would have loved it. You know, they had their signs up and screaming and yelling and he, he would have just been so proud. He'd, I'm sure he was there. It was beautiful. And just it, what we expected, I wouldn't expect anything different, of course, but it was just beautiful. He was a, considered to be the greatest athlete, but was an even greater human being and father that changed the world. And if you follow his footsteps, you won't be doing wrong in life. Muhammad Ali is still an iconic example of the rags-to-riches American dream. He has surpassed being known as an incredible athlete and has inspired people around the world to be the best and to give back. Sport is a leveler. You can be born a pauper and die a king. You can rub shoulders with the high and the low. You can inspire so many no matter how much money they've got or haven't got, no how much hope in life they've got or haven't got, it's a leveller. It's that simple. You can always find a way. He was his own trailblazer. So he had no example to follow. So everything he did, he was setting the trend for others coming through. And I'm quite sure there have been others that have tried to be like him. But he could say and do many things without, without most taking offence. And again, he changed from being a villain where people wanted to see him lose to the point where people wanted to see him win. He had the nation behind him. He had the world behind him. You could have dropped him anywhere in the world and he'd have been recognised. Now that, to me, is power. He's had streets named after him. That, to me, is inspiration. Sportsmen and women are inspired by him. Not just what he did in the ring, what he said, where he stood, where he stood his opinion. They were inspired by him. So he inspired many, many others. And again, we don't appreciate somebody of true greatness until they've gone. Ali, true greatness. You know, he taught me to love and respect myself always and to surround myself with people who I think are better than me or like me because, you know, it's so easy to become of this world and just think that certain things are normal. I would think then he would teach me to always give and be kind and treat people with respect and love people. But I think that the best advice he probably gave me being that my father was so famous that in life, people are going to treat you better because of who your father is, but nothing, nothing makes you better than anyone but your heart. So always keep an open heart and treat all people with respect and love and try to make uplift people, make them feel good. And, and, you know, God will always bless you. But I think that it's just his humanity is his greatest accomplishment and greatest, should be his most prized attribute. 
he was so human. He's more human and humble and down to earth than any person you will ever, ever know. The fact that he could reach that fame and that status and hold on to that, the fact that he could come out of the 60s when black people were treated terribly by whites and still love and accept all people and not hate them and not be bitter because of it, not be turned hard or cold because of it and to forgive. You know, so his humanity is his greatest accomplishment and should be his legacy above all else. That, you know, for someone who accomplished this much in life and went through as much as he did and to hold on to that humanity and to preserve it and to, and to try to spread that around the world is, to me, the greatest thing about him. Hana Ali's book, At Home with Muhammad Ali, is available wherever you buy or download your books. Next time on A Life Lived. It was probably his fourth or fifth bond. His mother finally stopped nagging him to get a proper job. You know, he said, I've been an actor for 40 years and my mother still thinks I should get a proper job. But there you go. I mean, you know, he was very grounded because he had all these people around him saying, you know, don't be so silly. Join us as we chat with Sir Roger Moore's personal assistant, Gareth Owen, and his daughter, Deborah Moore, about the Bond star's rise to fame and his greatest achievements. This is an Audio Boom original production by Muddy Knees Media and Breaking Stereotypes. This podcast was presented and executive produced by me, Stephanie Okupniak, assistant produced by Paige Waller. If there is an icon that you would like to know more about, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram using the handle at a underscore.